Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to former Space Hog frontman Royston Langdon. Everybody remembers this song, In the Meantime, from 1996. Huge number one hit, off the album Resident Alien. Great stuff. I mean, he was, these guys were huge at the time. He marries Liv Tyler, who's like one of the hottest up-and-coming actresses in the world at the time they have a kid I mean life is just shot into the stratosphere unfortunately as it often does it doesn't last forever you know they put out two more albums and around the beginning of the 2000s they call it quits well uh, I wanted to know what he's been up to ever since then and uh, he's continued to work in fact just a few months ago he put out a solo album called everything's dandy under the name leads all caps, L-E-E-D-S. And we talk about that album in here a lot. And uh, come to find out, just since this conversation, which happened just a few weeks ago, he is go- he's abandoning the Leeds name and just going to keep his own name, Royston Langdon. So any, any further solo albums will be under Royston. And, uh, and, but this album, too, I think might be re-released as Royston Langdon as well. But last I saw, it's still on Spotify, iTunes, all that kind of stuff, as leads. Again, it's called Everything's Dandy. I know that's a little confusing. Also, since having this conversation, some big news was announced. He will be opening for Psychedelic Furs on their upcoming American tour. In fact, that kicks off here in a couple of weeks. You can go to RoystonLangdon.com for all all the news. That is so great, isn't it? Well, anyway, Yan is a big fan of these guys. I've been trying to do this for a long time. I'm really glad we made it work. It's funny. I wish you guys could could have seen this. We were on Skype. I could see him. He couldn't see me. He's outdoors in L.A., kind of on a porch or something, and over the court, looking every bit the rock star. You know what I mean? Shades, tight shirt, looking good. And uh, over the course of the conversation, though, he just gets more and more relaxed, and he kind of settles into where he's eventually just full-on lounging in this lounge chair out on the porch. It was such a cool thing to see. Um, Having said all that, what's really interesting is that he has some very unique, uh, I would think, and, and profound takes on fame and rock stardom and money. I mean, that's what we talk about with pretty much everybody on here. And he says some things that are very unique. It's not really that important to him. Especially near the end of this conversation, I think he says some really profound things. I will say, our conversation gets off to a little bit of an awkward start, and it's my fault. A little bit of uh, advice to any podcasters out there. I actually try and pride myself on kicking it off with a really good question or a really good anecdote almost every time, and I blew it a little bit on this one. And and, uh, he kind of calls me out on it. So anyway... If you're thinking of getting into podcasting, make sure that first question is succinct and right on, okay? Anyway, he called me from somebody's house in L.A. Yeah. Um, so for starters, I feel like I have to ask you a question that you've probably been asked a million times, and I want to, that's because I want to know about the, the writing and the creation of In the Meantime. And in the, the reason I ask that is because 
Space Hog is a band that wears their influences so heavily on their sleeve. You know, the Bowie and the T-Rex and the Mata Hoople. And those are my favorite bands, too. And so I'm curious, when you went into the creation of that song specifically, was it a nod to your influences? Was it something that you felt was genuinely just unique to you? What went into it? What were you thinking at the time? I have to have some black coffee first because <laughs> a long time ago. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, it was a very different time in a way when that song was written. I think the writing of it, the actual writing of the sort of intellectual property side of it was, you know, it was just a sort of feeling really, a feeling of, you know, wanting to connect, I think, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with something and something outside of myself. Uh, all my songs, I think, are sort of ways I'm sort of trying to find my way out in mm -hmm. a way. I'm trying to sort of express the inside of it. So when you say a way out, you mean a way out of yourself? A way out of like what's... You know? I mean a way out of what I'm sort of feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where the the expression's coming from. And that's what that was about. And it was a, it was a sort of positive thing, I think, in the face of annihilation. And it's a sort of daily reprieve from that, isn't it? And, mm -hmm. and the song is, is a way of expressing that for me in terms of how the sort of influences of the song actually came together a lot of those parts were sort of put together by me i'd had these ideas and uh the telephone thing you know mm -hmm. so you wrote that that was going to be one of my questions that beginning part that was in your head that wasn't a production trick that was added on later no that was that was in my head yeah really that, interesting yeah, yeah. i knew there was this sort of like I don't think it's just Bowie, really, because, I mean, I think I sing like Bowie, be partly because, you know, I listen to those with the guys, Queen, Bowie, and, mm -hmm. and Roxy Music, and all that sort of stuff, with the singers I was listening to when I was, um, you know, a young kid, sort of from the ages of, you know, 12 through 16, 17, 18, you know. So I think that's perhaps why that's like that. But I think there's a lot of other influences in there, too. Mm -hmm. I mean... I was definitely influenced by things that I would later get to sort of know more personally, like, you know, Dinosaur Jr. and mm. stuff that was coming out of America at the time. Mm. Sonic Youth. Oh, there you go. And, uh, you know, Pixies. Yeah. And the whole sort of thing that they started, which was the sort of super, you know, the quiet verse and the super loud chorus on the guitars. Yeah. So it wasn't really a Bowie thing, but I think the inflections of my voice and and then the sort of perhaps the melody, I don't know. Um, mm. I suppose perhaps might be sort of uh, inspired by that. And then the sort of wobbly thing on the guitar in the chorus mm -hmm. feels very sort of Mick Ronson, I suppose. Oh, kind of, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. say that that song in particular, you know, screams like obvious Bowie influence. A lot of the other songs okay. on. Well, Most you, said, you said it. No, I know. I know I did. Trying to make your story make sense. <laughs> no, 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 no. I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm reverse engineering what you want to hear. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Um, okay. Yeah, I, uh, okay, I guess. The... I mean, to me, that song just came out of my head, you know. Okay. Like the words and the, and the, and the tune was one of those. Like many other songs I've written that sort of come together in a way. The love, the only, the only, you, you know, uh -huh. thing. 
was like felt like that was all like that. It was just came like that. That's okay. That's essentially well because you were so. I guess I'm tying two disparate thoughts together. One is that Space Hog are obviously influenced by Bowie and the you know that glam rock of the '70s. And here's yeah. this great song that is the biggest thing that you've created, for yeah. better or worse, in your career. Do they come together? Did one speak to the other? And if even if they didn't, it doesn't matter. I'm curious, when you're on your bed and you're plucking a guitar and you're thinking, oh, I think I'm on to something. You know, this in the, me I, I think I'll call this in the meantime. Is that what it happened? Is that how this, you know, these seeds grow? Not really, man. I mean, it, hmm. you know, it, it's not as conscious as that for me. Isn't it? Okay. No, it's not as conscious. And by the way, it's the biggest only in, in with the benefit of hindsight. It's no different from any other song ever. It just happens to sort of have connected and all sure. the things lined up and yeah. you know, before the band started to become sort of impossibly dysfunctional, you know. Yeah. All those things were sort of in place at that time. So it's the only biggest because of that reason. I, I don't I, I don't really think it's too different from anything that I'm still doing today. No, that's good point. Yeah. You know. Still, the, my, still. The, my yeah. favorite Space Hog album is the Hogacy. So, oh really? Yeah. Oh, by far. I keep sort of trying to dispel that because I, I played a show the other night in St. Louis. Uh -huh. No, St. Louis in uh, Kansas City. Okay. And, and the guy that was the club owner was I was chatting with him before, and he was like, oh, "I'm such a big fan of the Hogacy," and I was like, "Well, really?" And I, I it's my least favorite. Is it really? Yeah, wow. I don't really like the sound of it. Huh. But I think it's the songs are pretty good. I just I like that it rocks the most I guess consistently or something. It's uh, it's kind of the catchiest or the peppiest to me personally, you know. And I well, so I was gonna bring this up later, but it's up now, so I'll mention it. In when I do all this research for you, um, you know, I, I'm looking up Royston and I'm seeing you know all these articles about being married to Liv Tyler and everything. And some of the quotes that I saw were like, you know, Liv was the muse for creating this album I, I would she inspired it it wouldn't have happened without her and i wondered if that kind of an emotional tie to that album does it change your perception of it at all you know do you Maybe. feel good or bad about it now because of that no i don't think that's the reason why okay no, no, it's not the reason okay there's no connection to my, okay. my relationship with my ex-wife or anything my, my, the reason why I don't love it is purely because of the way that the sort of the frequencies hit the huh. ear. Okay. I've always tried to make sort of warm sounding records that will sort of survive and over time, and and that one just doesn't. 
it just doesn't sit with me in the same way sonically as 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 the others do. Huh. Okay. Okay. Purely, purely that, really. I mean, in terms of the writing, this was the thing I was saying to the guy in in Kansas City. It was like I was faced with a choice at that point with the band. It was either make the record with the the, the, the and by the way, it was this guy Paul Ebersold, who's a lovely, lovely guy. Mm-hmm. He's not a bad guy, and he's an excellent producer. And he works out of Memphis, or he did do. But the guy that was the label boss at the time was this guy, Danny Goldberg. Hmm. Uh, Danny, you know, again, he's a very sort of like powerful character. And he had certain ideas, I think. And and I don't, you know, from where he was coming from, he, he, I think he had, you know, legitimate reasons for that. It just didn't work in the way that I've worked, or I like to work, which is mm-hmm. sort of a bit more organic and a bit more fluid. So this was a bit more preconceived than I liked the idea of, mm. uh, or felt comfortable with, I should say. And there were some questions about, you know, aesthetic. And I hold myself to a very high standard when it comes to sort of releasing music. It's, yeah. You know, I think about it in terms of, you know, my, the people I love, the greats, the great records that I love. And today still, you know, the ones that have held up. And, you know, I always wanted to make, like, classic classic records you know yeah. for, for what that format is and you know for, for a rock band like i think space hog was that was the sort of setup you know okay okay that was the context of it is that it's it's um you can't really you know there's only so much you can do with a rock band you know it's yeah. not it's quite a sort of limiting canvas you've got to work with in some ways obviously the subject matter and all that sort of stuff can be extraordinary but in terms of you know you got a couple of guitars, a drummer and a singer and a bass, but you know mm-hmm. it's uh, you know so on those fronts you know it's it, I like to sort of create a wholesome set, what I think of like as a really sort of warm wholesome sounding record. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at dinner last night and the Talking Heads album came on. Uh, Ooh, which one? Oh God! It, well, it would have been uh, speaking in tongues. Oh, okay. Was it burning down the house or something that came on the? I think it was burning down the house. No, it wasn't burning down the house. Anyway, the point was, was I was listening, and by the way, this is in a sort of restaurant thing, so yeah. there's so much frequency that I could sure. pick up. But when the when the song after that came on, they'd done this whole thing where they try and make the highs really high mm. and the lows really low, and it just sounds it sort of sounds very disparate to me and very mm. disconnected which is not my vibe at all. I like the Talking Heads vibe because the whole thing just sounded meaty. Really? Okay. And so that's sort of what I'm, I'm sort of looking for. Uh, and by the way, this is, I'm only talking in terms of like production at this point. I'm not talking right. in terms of really writing. I'm just talking in terms of the production. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was going to get to this later, but when I listened to the, your, I guess it would be your latest album, Everything's Dandy, under the name Leeds. And I don't know if Leeds is a completely separate thing, or is that what you call yourself as a yeah, solo artist? I'm calling myself, I think I'm going to go under my own name, Royston Langham. From I just wanted to see if I could sort of, you know, make a record and put it out. And I was a little bit sort of doing it in hiding at the time. Okay. So I'm, I'm highly sort of, you know, insecure as a mm. person and creatively and. I wasn't, you know, I was always sort of reluctant to sort of put something out under my own name, and for and also for other reasons. I was working a lot with other artists at the time, mm-hmm. and I didn't, didn't want to sort of distract from that. 
I didn't think it would take off sort of as well as it did. So I think in future it'll be under my own name, Ross, okay. because it, you can't. One of the things everybody finds like you can't. The good thing about Space Hog, especially when we came up with it, there wasn't any other Space Hogs. You know, you know, we were the only one. We, I think, I think we sort of made up that word and became yeah. a thing around technology and how much space you got left on your hard drive and all that. <laughs> Right. Or take you know dogs taking up like too much room on the couch and stuff, mm-hmm. but before that it wasn't really anything. Before we came, so it was easily it's still easily sort of searchable on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Leeds is impossible. You just get it is. <laughs> you just get a sort of post-industrial town in the north. <laughs> right. Alan Bennett, and uh, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny you say that. Well, the reason I mentioned this is because that Leeds album is pretty mellow. It's kind of acoustic-y. Yeah. So when yeah. you talk about a meaty sound, yeah. I guess meaty doesn't have to mean crunchy guitars and, you know, no. woo-woo-woos. You're talking about the frequency of the sound itself. Exactly. Okay. And ultimately, I'm talking about the feeling that that leaves you with, you know. Yeah. That's what I'm going for. You know, if you listen to any of those songs on Everything's Dandy, you know, it sort of fits in more sonically with anything off of, you know, Resident Alien or the Chinese album. Yeah. In many ways. But yeah. it's not, musically it's not the same because it's not, it's not me, you know, with Space Hulk, for instance, and it's just me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Huh, okay. And you mentioned that it had, it's been pretty well received. You're happy with what yeah. has happened with it? Yeah, I'm very happy with what's happened with it. I wasn't planning on on putting it out. What happened was, was I sort of had a sort of seismic shift in my life in about 2012. And my life changed in many ways for the better. Mm. Um, And I sort of came around a little bit. And within that sort of change afterwards, subsequently, perhaps maybe maybe three years after that, I got the urge to sort of really sort of put things down again. And the first song that came out was, was that song, Someone. But then having sort of put these like, I don't know, 25 songs together, there was a song that, a couple of songs actually, but one song from 
that I'd recorded when I, I had a house up in Woodstock. I just did it myself on my acoustic guitar. Uh, uh, it's called You Can't Go Home Again. And it seemed to fit in with the sort of theme of what I was trying to write about that's on the record. Yeah. Um, and that was the sort of basis of where it started out from. You might believe in heaven But most of our days were in hell You might say that you could blow me away Well, I know that only too well Young lovers, the cruelest We would lie like a rug In a funny way, I'm a fool for the game They call the love from above Call the love from above Now I know that's not needed Is it cuts like a knife I feel like I'm healing When I turn out the light And that's more than money can buy I want beautiful and more To help even out the score When the future never ends When you can't That one I put as the sort of start of the record. Okay. Yeah, now, but it's from it's from a, it's from from a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So I have to ask, what happened in 2012 that changed your life for the better? It's just the way that I sort of just a lifestyle change, I think, really, and okay. you know, I sort of recognized there were certain things that were not working for me in my life, and. Uh, I was able to identify those things and, and make some changes, and it's I'm, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm still I'm still a work in progress, and mm -hmm. but it definitely changed my perspective to okay. take on responsibility for my own work. Okay, uh, not necessarily. I think the thing with Space Hug was I was 22 years old, and I didn't you know um, have a lot of worldly experience in some ways, and I suddenly found myself. Um, with enormous success, and then not really knowing, apart from my brother, not really knowing anybody around me, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in some ways, I, you know, I'm a super like sensitive guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The turbulent world of rock and roll can take a toll on, yeah. on, on sort of person, and and so there was aspects of that lifestyle that I didn't really, I tried to avoid, you know. And it's just the old story, mm -hmm. and you, you, you know. Sex, uh, drugs, and rock and roll tend to anesthetize oneself, yeah, yeah. and uh, look for distractions, and and so yeah, so I just I just wasn't really doing that anymore. Nor, you know, it wasn't the place I was coming from mm, anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that that's been the same since. Yeah. So I think when it comes to ideas and music, I'm highly driven and highly sort of, you know, pursue those 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 ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, I get very sort of impassioned by ideas, like you know, in other things, in my, like and you know, whatever it is that you know, I think humans and different humans identify with in terms of what gets you going. You know, mm -hmm. 
song ideas that really sort of get me going when they get me going, you know. So, yeah. so I have to sort of pursue those in a sort of vehement way, and um, it's a sort of compulsion to do that. But that's something I really am grateful for. Yeah. Good. I have two questions relating to everything you just said. One, real quick, uh, speaking of lifestyle changes, when I heard you on Jonesy's jukebox a while back, you were saying how you were quitting smoking. Have you still managed to quit smoking? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. Oh, good for you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you smoke? No, uh-uh. No. Yeah, I still sort of crazy, you know, get an urge every now and again. Well, my son was getting on my case about it all the time, you know, and it, it sort of, you know, I like the idea of smoking, and I like I like the sort of ability for people to be free and do what they want to do, you know. Mm -hmm. So not one of those, like, Nazis who don't like anybody smoking within a mile of them or whatever, or you have right. to do it, you know, under your covers with the lights out at nighttime, you know. Mm -hmm. But I care about him, and, and he cares about me. And You talk about, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned, you know, getting really passionate, excited about musical ideas. You know, in 24 years of existence, basically, between Space Hog and now Leeds, do you feel like you have enough of an outlet out there to, and enough of an audience to sustain you when you have these new ideas? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is that, you know, are you able to maintain a career as a musician? You know, are you a, do, can you pay your bills that way? Well, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, oh, really? That's the, that's the part that's complex because I've certainly suffered my own um, slings and arrows of, of the music business and, you know, lost a lot of rights to my own music and all that. Or given really? Them up. Yeah. Mm. So, remains to be seen, but I never really got into music to make money in the first place, to be honest. Sure. It's not why I do it. And that's why what happened with this Leeds thing was like, you know, it was not what I was, I wasn't really planning on it. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I wasn't planning on Space Hog either back in the, you know, those days. It was, it was just, it just sort of happened. You know, I was happily working in a recording studio mm. on 14th Street in New York. I don't know. I mean, look, I just did a tour. It was really hard. I did, went out with this guy, Jimmy Nyeko, and I mean, I'm not like going to retire anytime soon. Yeah. I've done other jobs, but in some ways, I think in music, in musical terms, I've paid my dues. And sure. if there's an audience out there, that'd be great. And if not, I don't mind. I'm, 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 you know, happy sort of. Yeah. Um, you know, doing it as a amateur for fun. You know? Okay. Do you? Um, I mean. I, I'm guessing then that you couldn't necessarily live off in the meantime forever. Do you own the, you wrote that song. Do you own the rights to that song still? No, I got, I got sorts. I, it's a very difficult thing for me to talk about because it's one of those things where you're not sort of supposed to talk about it. But okay. at this point, I don't make anything from that. In fact, I don't really, the guys in the band make more than I do. Really? Um, yeah. And they didn't write it. Oh man. Like just from performance royalties? All that stuff, yeah. Oh man, that's rough. Yeah. So at this stage then, and, and forgive me if these if this is too probing, I hope not. One of the things we try to I cover on here. I don't mind talking about it at all. It's it's you know, it's something that I think can really help other people. That's exactly it. We cover yeah. the business side on here very sensitively. Yeah. Because we talk to mostly legacy artists, you know, like you who 
have these hits or have these moments or have sort of an arc to their career. And we're, and I'm just curious, what do you do when the, when the wave crashes, you know, for a minute there, and we'll get more into this, but Space Hog is a hot band and you're married to a movie star and, and you've got one of the biggest songs in the world, but it dies down as it does for everybody. What do you do then? You know, what comes next? I mean, I find you know, self-promotion very sort of uh, embarrassing. Yeah. So not in line with what I want to do with my time. And I suppose, you know, I'm talking to you. It's like I'll talk to anybody about that stuff. You know, I'm not going to be like the guy getting out trying to up my social media presence, to be honest. I just am not really very good at that. Yeah, it sort of in in some senses was a part of the whole boom of that when when that sort of stuff started yeah. in, in, in you know and prior to that really with sort of like those magazines that really started in England to be honest the like uh, Inquirer and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing that was a you know it was like celebrity magazines you know before it became an internet thing but it just never really interested me at all uh, I'm not really concerned uh with what people think about me sure um and i'm not in the slightest bit interested in what anybody else is really up to for the most part unless 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 i'm drawn to them by their work and whatever and it's not just music it's all kinds of things sure Um, and in terms of that you say well what am i going to do well there's so much to do on that front Mm -hmm. um there's so much to see and hear and and you know, and relatively, at, at you know, forty-six years old, so little time. So yeah, yeah. I definitely have. There's no point. That's why there's not a lot of point going on about like you know. I mean, I can try to remember what it was that I wrote, how I wrote in the meantime, or anything mm-hmm. back then. But I'm not that fascinated by it because mm-hmm. you know what I mean. It's like quite yeah. a long time ago, and I'm not really that interested in what I did yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think I think I think sentimentality is, has its place, mm-hmm. you know. And in fact, I was talking about this uh, the other day. It's like sentimental feelings are sort of important, I think. But you know, when I look ahead, I'm I'm furiously waiting for the the van to come pick me up. You mm-hmm. know, bags mm-hmm. are all ready to go by the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of nostalgia, and I mean, do. I don't know what the state of Space Hog is today. You've referenced them in the past tense, past tense a couple of times in this, or said that we were, you know, so dysfunctional. Do you guys get invitations to play in like, you know, '90s package tours? I think you did one with Sponge a while back. And if you did, are you able to come together as a band to do those? Do they interest you? I'd rather play on my own to nobody, you know. Hmm. Uh, at this point, only and do what I'm doing right now because I don't we don't really feel that it feels a bit just a little like Space Hog was something that I did when I was you know in my twenties and early thirties maybe I think a rock band like that requires a an audience to sort of really work and I don't know that that I could sort of get my head around getting on the stage at this point in my mm-hmm. life. I think it would feel like a sort of regression. Really? Okay. Yeah. What is the state this uh, the state of Space Hog today? Are you guys friendly? Do you talk to each other? Could you get back together if you wanted to? I doubt it. 
Really? Is that a brother thing with you and Anthony or are we uh, talking Gallagher and Davies issues here or is it something different? That relationship's pretty sort of, you know, non-existent for me right now. Mm. I, I saw Johnny when I played, I played in Seattle about a couple of months ago with Leeds and mm. I saw him briefly. And, you know, he and I get on pretty well. We sort of still, there's not a lot of difference really. There's, you know, I don't really see Richard that much. Richard can be sort of like uh, um, a sort of mercurial character. Mm. And, um, I just don't really have that, you know, putting a band together, like, you know, three different, as well as myself, you know, yeah. pretty powerful egos is really difficult to do. Well, let's talk about, I mean, it sounds like you're not a nostalgic person, but I really would like to talk about some of the those days and, you know, the the rise and maybe the fall and the, the stories. I mean, you guys weren't together that long, if I remember right. When Can I just ask you, though, what's interesting yeah. about it to you? I believe people like to hear stories, you know? I like, for me personally, I can tell you, for instance, the moment when, you know, you realize that you were a, a successful rock band. Maybe not, and you know, when you had suddenly more money in your bank account than was there before. Or you, uh, there were girls where there weren't girls before. Or there was, you could go buy a new car when you didn't, you couldn't have afforded one before. You know, just these, the, the transition in people's lives from being nothing into being a, a successful rock star and then having to transfer that back into not a nothingness, but you know, like I said, when you're on the other side of that hill, how do these transitions happen? How do you feel? Again, I can only tell you how I feel today. Yeah, having I'm just grateful to to be able to tell the tale. I suppose. Uh, yeah. If I if I sort of so desire, I was there, you know. So I don't feel like I need to spout off about it. But a lot of people that were around me at that time and, you know, uh, didn't make it. And so mm -hmm. in that sense, every every day's a blessing for me, sure. really. It's a bonus. Okay. Uh, um, you know, and that's why on that front when you say, oh, well, you know, money from in the meantime and can you survive being a musician? That's just not really that. It just doesn't matter to me because, mm. you know, I'm doing all right. I'm yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful son. And, uh, you know, I have some beautiful relationships in my life. And, and on that front, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be happier, you know, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day here. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I'm watching you. You, you look every bit the rock star right now. You got your sunglasses on and you're lean back and your V-neck black t-shirt and oh, yeah. looking oh. good. Um, so let, okay. So let me ask you this then. So the, when the Chinese album comes out. Do you feel any sense of, like, letdown? Falling 
feel like, oh, this, um, you know, our, our record company isn't getting behind this one like they did the last one, or we're not getting spun on the radio as often as we used to. Are you noticing any of that? Or you, you seem like a guy who's just in it for the art and not paying attention maybe to that stuff. No, I knew that stuff was going on. Um, it just, you know, and by the way, that was happening prior to that. It really started to happen right after, you know, what we were going to release after in the meantime. Was that cruel to be kind? Well, it ultimately was, but originally it was going to be Candyman. And I actually wanted Star Sign. Mm. Oh, I was crackers. this whole idea about I wanted to do a video I wanted to get Rob Schneider in it <laughs> but you know that was the thing man really I sort of lost aspects of control of the output of the band pretty quickly and my feeling was and is that the sort of things that make up a, a hit song are, are many many different things it's not you know the song's really important but it has to sort of be the right hit the consciousness of the community that it's being sort of played into yeah. at the right time, you know, in the right yeah. consciousness. And all the ducks need to be lined up around that, like the record company. Um, we had this thing that happened with Space Hog early on that, you know, we were signed by this guy, Seymour Stein. He was, he was a He's great... He's a legend, yeah. A legend. And um, he was so behind us and so supportive. He was, he was a real patron of mm -hmm. Space 
you know, and of the arts generally. Mm-hmm. And we love that about him. And and um, and then he saw he there was sort of some internal politics that happened, you know, within the sort of Warner group. Sylvia Roan coming in, and then sort of Seymour getting a bit pushed out, and then there were other bands coming up around that time, and mixed with the sort of indecision or the sort of lack of, you know, common goal, I think, of the band. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody had different sort of ideas about what, what, what we should do by this stage. And as soon as in the meantime had been on MTV and all that, it seemed like everybody knew what was the right thing was, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I definitely sort of segued into sort of a lot of frustration mixed with a lot of either sort of looking to get anaesthetized or actually being anaesthetized. Mm-hmm. And so that that sort of unraveling started to happen as soon as, soon as, uh, soon as in the meantime had success. It was mm. like, you know, we had this manager David Sonnenberg with the Fugees, mm. you know, a bunch of other very established artists. You know, he was a sort of big time guy. It's a very powerful figure. You know, it's very hard to maintain one's sort of dignity and balance within the context of such sort of planetary egos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so it was mm. difficult. very difficult and, and so that's why I'm happy to talk about it now and that's why what I'm doing now is much more like you know it's all a win for me I just mm-hmm. I re- really just like doing what I do and yeah I, I hope there is more of an audience I think the thing with Leeds is a bit like you know distracting for people to know what what it is and it's hard to find so that's why I think, you know, I was actually speaking to Steve Jones. I was speaking to Steve, and he was like, dude, just call yourself Royston Langley. Yeah. Because, you know, this Leeds thing is just too, it's too weird. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do another record and just put it out in my own name and or maybe Good. even change the Leeds thing. But I'm very proud of what, what I've done so far on that Good. front. And, uh, you know, as I said, I just got through a whole tour. Some of it was poorly attended. Some of it was really well attended. Good. You know, um, but nevertheless, every single show that I did, I felt really, really good about. Good, good. And, uh, that's that's always that's why I started to make music in my bedroom was was to get that feeling, not yeah. to to get you know be able to buy a Ferrari or whatever mm-hmm. it is that mm-hmm. people want to have today. Mm-hmm. I'm not really that bothered about that, to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm have a much more sort of like defined sensibility when it comes to it comes to all that stuff. Yeah, okay. Let I, have me ask, old, oh. I have an Alfa Romeo. You do? Yeah. Good to know. Okay. <laughs> Such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and uh, yeah, anyway. Okay, yeah. good to know. Uh, let me ask you about some of your songs specifically. I wanted to ask about Almond Kisses because it features Michael Stipe. Back to me, back to me, 
How did yeah. this happen? How did the duet thing happen? Yeah, yeah. How did he? Did was he a fan of yours? Did you? Were you guys buddies? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were all sort of hanging out in New York, really. Um, uh, Michael was always around, and there was a whole sort of group of people in in New York. Actually, my Anthony did a movie that Michael produced called Velvet Goldmine. Oh, great! I love that movie. So that was all going on around then. And I think it was just like, hey, do you want to come down and maybe sing on something? That song felt like the most sort of thing that he could get his head around. Yeah. And so he sort of determined it, to be honest. And then I sang with him and we did that afterwards. And it sort of like, it was it's sort of beautiful, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great tune. Sort of, you know, it, it was great getting to sort of work with him because he's got... You know, he's got such a sort of different sensibility and approach to to singing to me. Yeah, uh, that it was highly educational to get to uh, uh, you know uh, to sort of understand his method a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about that. Um, I also wanted to ask we you know talking going back to the Bowie influence that I mentioned earlier, Perpetual Drug off of the Hogacy is uh, basically Rebel Rebel. Perpetual drag, yeah. It's yeah. basically Rebel Rebel with a, like maybe one chord switched yeah. around. Is that sort of like a love letter? Probably, yeah. Probably in some ways. Uh, I don't know if I ever figured out how to play Rebel Rebel, but I figured out that. And Tell me about, were, did I read this right? Were you and uh, Bing, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Uh, considered. Were you being considered to take over Velvet Revolver? Uh, yeah. What happened there? What what was the story? Well, they were looking they were looking to replace Scott. I got a call, I think from their manager, and said, "Do you want it? Would you be interested?" And 
I said, yeah, okay. And I happened to be in LA at the time and um, I went and met with them. And this was prior to Wyland sort of getting the acts. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I said, you know, I don't, I did, I, I wasn't that familiar with their music, to be honest. But I, I honestly really liked uh, Scott's uh, yeah. sensibility. I liked everything that he'd done and, and the Stone Temple Pilots had done. And I'd, I'd seen him a few times. And I'd, always, I'd seen him play, but I'd never seen Velvet Revolver. And they said, well, let, I met them. He, he, I'm in L.A. right now. They said, well, let's meet in the valley. And we met at this Mexican restaurant in the valley. And uh, it was really so right. really rock and roll, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, sort of sizing me up. And um, that's it. And then I didn't think much of it. I got on the plane. I had to be in New York the next day for some reason. And um, and then I got off the plane. And I, I was really ill, I remember. I was really got a flu of some kind. Mm-hmm. I remember arriving and going straight to bed when I got to New York and Duff called me and said, look, we'd, we'd like you know to pursue this thing a bit more. Can you come back and rehearse tomorrow? Mm. I'm in New York now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I ended up, they ended up flying me back and then flying me to London to see one of the, I think one of the last shows they did with Scott. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were great, and I thought Scott was great. Yeah. And um, I guess I knew Slash a little bit from from here and there, and and um, and also um, um, Dave. Yeah. Uh, Dave was a massive Space Hog fan. Huh. And and he was sort of keen, and Slash was keen, and 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 we ended up sort of hanging out a lot, Slash and I, and and. Uh, and we did some shows here, uh, like in like Vegas and mm-hmm. and LA and stuff, and and it was always really fun. And I mean, he's like, you know, Slash is amazing, man. At yeah. That thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and funnily enough, I found I was looking for some documents on my computer the other day, and I found two of the songs. We rec- we went in the studio. We recorded songs, you know, here, yeah. um, you know, and. Uh, I found them the other day. I didn't listen to them. Really? I found them. Yeah. No way. Yeah, so there's stuff. But, you know, the truth was this, man. The reason I couldn't do that, they were sort of looking to get more heavy metal. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. Slash and, and those guys were looking to go more in the, like, that direction. Okay. And I was more into the, like, Bowie thing, I think, you know, we where Wyland was at, I think, mm-hmm. you know, really. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I couldn't really do that whole, like, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs singing style. It's not right. really my thing, you know. So I was sort of going in that direction. And, and, and I think I think there was a sort of, there was a bit of a sort of, you know, to and fro. We, we, were, we, were, we were messing around at it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just, you know, they, they were... Yeah, it's really hard. again. It's really hard. I mean, you got some like major egos. Yeah, I bet. And you know, Scott, I think was a real, real talent. You know, and he had his own sensibility that. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't really quite the rocker enough. You know, yeah, maybe. I think, and plus, I mean, if you think about it, it's it's a super group or a side. It's a side project for these guys. I mean, some other call comes, whether it be. Uh, 
I guess in, you know, whether it's GNR or the opportunity to make a solo album or something else. And Velvet Revolver becomes kind of the lowest priority where it might be the highest priority for you, you know? Well, you know, I was still doing space art at the time. Oh, were you? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. In fact, we were working on a record then. So, um, I mean, I gave it what I could give it. And, sure. and I certainly, you know, to be frank, early on, the first time I met with them and we rehearsed, it was like they were going to go to Dubai in four days and play a gig. Mm. And we did. I, I didn't know their music, really. Yeah. And they sent me the records and I'd listened to them and I'd sort of learned it. And they had this rehearsal with the whole like production crew and like, you know, the, the auto cue and all that on the like with all the lyrics on and the whole they were ready to ship out to Dubai, basically. Yeah. And, and at the end of this rehearsal, Slash said, okay, let's do it. Let's go to Dubai. And I was like, really? Mm-hmm. And, the, and then <laughs> I think Duff was a little bit like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, mm-hmm. wait. Um, um, and I really wasn't ready. I mean, I I, yeah. I, knew, like, I knew how to sing like two of the songs and that was it. There was no mm-hmm. way I could have done a show, you know. But um, huh. that's sort of like, you know, Slash is just happy playing the guitar. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. He didn't. He didn't give a damn who's singing, really, and okay. he's he's happy if he he's got his you know Les Paul around his neck and it's at full mm-hmm. blast. You know he, that's that's what that's what makes him tick. You know, yeah, and I can see that with you. He's really good at he's really good at it. So you know, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever meet Bowie? Yeah. Yeah. Did we. Were, yeah, we were like friends for a while. Yeah. Really. Yeah. What must that have been like? I mean, it's, you obviously love him, and he was such an influence on you, and then to actually become friendly. How did that happen? So going way back when I first came to New York, I met Julian Schnabel, the painter. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who he was, but um, a mutual friend subsequently took me over to his what was then his art studio in the West Village and um, I ended up playing a piano that he had in the in his studio and, and uh, anyway we sort of like hit it off Julian and I and he enjoyed listening to me play the piano and then I would play like sort of old Tom Waits songs and he'd sing them and we had fun you know hmm. and uh, and then when he was making the Basquiat a few, a few years later I guess quite a few years later he called me up and said, hey, Bowie's going to be down at this thing. He's in the movie. Do you want to come and meet him? And I said, no, I couldn't handle it. You know, yeah. I, didn't, I, yeah. I, didn't, I couldn't deal with it then. Um, anyway, so that was the end of that. And then years later, this is how it happened. Liv and I were together, and um, she was doing the promo for the Lord of the Rings movie. Mm-hmm. Alexander McQueen designed some of her clothing, mm-hmm. and and Lee, as he is known, came over to the hotel room and 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 fit her some clothes. And they, she, he would come quite a lot, and he would come with a bit of a crew, and we would hang out, you know. And 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 ultimately, he lived myself and his partner at the time, uh, Shane, uh, sort of became friends. Anyway, I said, I guess in passing to Lee at one point, I said, oh, I really like what you did with the 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 
Union Jack mm. jacket that he made for Bowie on the Earthling. Oh, Earthling, yeah. yeah. And he said, "Oh, he said, oh, yeah, thanks." He said, oh, "Well, I, I have to have dinner next time I'm in New York." This was in London, but this happened. He said, well, I have to have dinner next time I'm in New York. And I said, oh, no, please, no, I can't. I can't possibly. I'm too shy. <laughs> and he said, no, nonsense. I'm going to do it. And I, to be honest, I didn't think anything of it. Anyway, Lee was the sort of guy who was a bit sort of, he was brilliantly sort of bolshy in a way. Uh-huh. Funny. And then about two weeks later, he was in New York, and he called up, and he said, hey, I've, I've organized it. It's, it's, you know, day after tomorrow, we're going to have dinner. No way. Fuck. Yeah. So I couldn't get out of it. And that's how it happened. So we went to this place in New York, Liv and I, and it was a whole sort of soiree, a very mm -hmm. sort of New York thing. And there were other people there. Bjork was there. Mm. Um, Matthew Barney. Wow. Um, obviously, Marn was there. And yeah. A few other people. You know, David came over, and I think you could tell that I was really sort of afraid and nervous and he sort of really put me at ease very quickly and and uh, we got talking it happened to be I remember it was the day that the Queen Mother uh, was buried oh really huh yeah because I remember having these conversations about that and um, anyway I think I was pretty I got pretty inebriated and <laughs> to sort of quell the nerves at the time and uh, anyway, but we sort of really got on, and it turned out that, you know, he was a fan of space, as he said. I couldn't believe it. Like, wow. oh, my God. You know, and uh, he, um, he, his father was from Yorkshire, mm. which is from. Um, so he had a lot of family in Yorkshire, which I, I sort of wasn't really aware of. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, all the spiders from Mars were from Yorkshire, too, from Hull. So uh, we sort of had this thing in common about sort of Yorkshire wit. Yeah. Which obviously really surprised me. And uh, and he said, do you want to come over to my house the next night and, and, and tomorrow night and have a listen to my new record? And I was like, okay. Oh, my gosh. What? Transpired from there. And he came to our wedding and sort of hung out. And then we sort of helped him find a place upstate in upstate New York and uh, there was a recording studio there called The Lair that started out this guy that I knew called Randall Wallace who um, whose family had this house I think it was their summer home and that became a Lair Studios which was an oh. incredible place um, had this incredible view of the of the Hudson Valley um, it was a great place wow and that ultimately um, Bowie ended up making some quite a few of his records up there, um, and then yeah, that was it really. It sort of would come sometimes, and I'd go and listen to him rehearse. We lived pretty close to each other at the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, wow. that's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you have ever believed? I mean, you're this guy growing up in Leeds, and uh, you decide you want to be a musician and you form this band and within a year you're huge and then you become friends with David Bowie and Steven Tyler is your father-in-law. I want to stop you there though because, you know, I, I was making music since I was seven. Were you? Okay. 
and, and I was in bands since I was 12. So the hope was always rock star, or professional musician at least, was always the hope. I just love making music, hmm. you know, and it just was the thing that I loved to do and, and felt good doing, you know. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like I was putting myself out by, by wanting to do that. And, no. You know, and, and yes, that was the goal. I was in all kinds of bands in England. So people say, oh, you were in New York for a year and then you got a big record deal. And space. A lot of that work I'd done from, sure. you know, constant through. So I always say I feel like I've definitely put in my 10,000 hours, you know. Sure. Um, but that had to have been a whirlwind. Wasn't, was there a whirlwind aspect to all of this at least? I mean, was your, were you kind of just sitting back outside of yourself thinking, I cannot believe everything that is happening to me right now? No, not at all. No, huh? Not at all. In fact... I think everybody else around me in the band thought that because they hadn't really done, I don't think they'd really sort of focused in the same way that I had mm. or, or do still. Yeah. You know, my, my, my peers are those people, you know, like Bowie and, 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 and all that's where, and it's not a sort of arrogant thing. It's just, that's why wouldn't, why wouldn't I sort of want to come from that place? You know? Yeah. yeah. And so Bowie did it with Elvis, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and, and Dylan and, and those guys, you know, you're not sort of coming in thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to like half-ass this thing. Yeah. It, it, I mean, um, it's when I do that, it's, 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 I, I am that thing, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just, um, it's just, uh, it's just part of me in that sense. And in that yeah. sense, I think, you know, uh, that I'm fortunate enough to have it in that regard. Right. And, you know, I'm probably the worst at capitalizing on that hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, <laughs> livelihood or certainly hanging on to it. Right. You know. Um, so, no, I didn't think, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Huh. Uh, uh, you know, there, there were times there were times when I sort of felt like, um, you know, th it was the next step and, there were, you know, you know, in the meantime, was in a movie, a demo version of it was in a movie that I was the assistant engineer sound. Actually, I ended up getting promoted to engineer uh, on when I worked at the studio at Baby Monster in New York. Really? Film, Nadja, N-A-D-J-A. And it has uh, Peter Fonda in it. Really? Yeah, it's like this B-horror movie. And it was produced by David Lynch. Now, oh, nobody man. knew me from Adam. <laughs> I'd made this song in the meantime and about two others on a demo tape and whilst you know working with the guy that is the director and the guy that was doing the music for it we'd become sort of friendly and he said what are you doing and I said well I'm you know, playing this band a bit he said oh, have you got anything can you play me I played him this tape he loved it and, was, and he put it in the movie you know mm, that's um, incredible the credits, you know, and I got five. I got five hundred bucks from David Lee. <laughs> um, so those sort of things. But again, you know, again, it was like I think, you know, I always sort of felt confident that, you know, the work was good. Yeah. And it was right. And you know, and I'll say this about you know the band around us. In some ways, you know, my brother was, was a great sort of PR man. Mm -hmm. And Johnny was a sort of good um, pragmatist, um, you know. 
and between that, I think between my brother and Johnny and and the manager, there was you know there was a sort of like the, the, the parts of me that are a bit sort of lackluster or just yeah. not interested in terms of like you know look at me, look at me, yeah. sort of thing. Um, those guys were sort of good at and and helped to sort of position my talents uh, to have a an ear, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. an eye. Ball. and uh and so in that sense that's how that happened you know so okay and and i think i think within that you know those guys were always sort of were, were taken aback but for me it felt very natural it felt natural to marry a movie star and have steven tyler for your father-in-law and you know be, uh, almost play with the guys in gnr and that that that's what i guess what i'm asking is that you seem like again i i'm you know, I didn't know you, but in talking with you, I can tell that this, it seems like this, I keep calling it a rock star lifestyle, and I'm sure that's not what you would call it, but this, I don't, you seemed like you were born to do this, you know what I mean? In a way, to be that guy, to be the front man of a killer rock band, and to to put yourself out there in that way. That Maybe that just came naturally to you. I think there's a lot of things that happen, man, to sort of position that in that way and, and I've definitely been in tune with that throughout mm. my life I think yeah. I've been aware of that as it were what is it my, you know my personal legend yeah that front you know prior to it uh, you know prior to the universe conspiring to make that a reality you know mm -hmm. and also you know subsequently afterwards you know yeah. uh, in some ways, in some ways, the life part of it is just my life, you know. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it is normal. My, you know, um, um, I'm, you know, Liv and I are the, are the parents to our child. You know, mm -hmm. he's he's just a, a boy, a young man now, mm -hmm. like you and I. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. uh, and you know the human condition is. Is we're social animals in that way, and and so no, there is no difference. And mm. I mean, of, there's a difference in the sense that, you know, your perception, one's perception of it, is sort of uh, different. But that's like fame in a way. Yeah. It's all imagined. Yeah, it's all imagined between between the famous person and the person that thinks that, that person is famous. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, good point. So in reality. It doesn't really exist, except when it exists in the mind of the famous person, mm. and that's just a thought. It's not. It's nothing really. Yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. So, you know, I can and, see that. And people like Stephen, for instance, you know, Stephen's really good at sort of like, you know, being a bit of a pit bull and going after that. He's got that thing that you know, he's just. It's like I'm gonna get it, and you yeah. know, nothing's gonna, you know. And, you know, I don't really have that in the, quite that same way. I always find that a bit embarrassing. Maybe it's because I'm British. Maybe it's just an excuse. It's probably mm -hmm. just an excuse in reality. Mm -hmm. uh, just a way of avoiding in a different way, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's just been my experiences, you know. And I'm yeah. so grateful to have had them. And I, I, re I don't regret anything because it, everything brought me to here. Yeah. And at this point in my life... I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty good. like good. I'm I'm not sort of looking to fill myself up with anything outside of me, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, what rock starism sort of is, or certainly perceived to be. Yeah. And and again, and I think Bowie said this, and it, it, it certainly, I know exactly what he meant. He said, was talking about, you know, trying to do everything to avoid being a rock star. Mm. The cliches. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ironically, by doing that, one ends up being the archetypal yeah. rock star. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. <laughs> and isolate, and you try and avoid, and you try not not to be sort of, you know, found out for being the, you know, for not for being mm-hmm. a sort, of, you know, just a just another dude, you know. Yeah. And in a way, nobody wants you to be just another dude because then that that fucks up their imagination mm-hmm. of of what being a rock star is. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. You sort of have to go along with it in a way, and and all that stuff just seems a bit. That's what I liked about Bowie. He wasn't into that, and strangely, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't have a big entourage. He didn't have a big like thing. He was just sort of wandering around as a guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but if you play the game and you show up in the limo and you got the security guard and you, you know, you sort of. There was these. There were these friends of mine that years ago in in New York did this like paparazzi thing where they would. You pay them to show up to a birthday party, and they take you know they'd show up mm-hmm. with a bunch of people with flashes on cameras and take pictures as you as you walked into a club, you know. Yeah. And it, they didn't even have any film in the cameras, you know, but they were like right. people, and then everybody looks around and goes, "Oh, fucking hell, who's that?" You know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's a sort of an art piece. Yeah. You know what I mean, and that's basically what it is, and that's sort of where we're living today. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And, 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 you know, Warhol was right about 15 minutes, you know what I mean? He was yeah. totally right about that, yeah. amongst other things that he was incredibly right. astute sure. about. Okay, well, inter- this has been a really interesting summarization of what it means to be famous or a rock star or rock star life versus real life and how they're not maybe that much different from each other. Um, I don't know that anyone I've talked to has quite given me the same perspective. This is really interesting. I've been doing this for four years, and you're kind of a unique case. How's um, it been going then? Has it been going all right? Have yeah, you- yeah, it's been going great. I mean, I, you know, I'm just some nobody who thought I who had very specific curiosities about rock stars and, like I said, these transitions in their lives. How do they deal with them? How do they feel? And I've been able to talk with some of my very famous favorite musicians. You mentioned Bowie. I. I interviewed uh, Carlos Alomar a couple of years ago, and that was interesting. A recent one that you might, I uh, I interviewed Marco Peroni, the guitarist for Adamant. You know, I'm a huge Adamant fan. And so it's just, it's amazing that, you know, people like you will talk to a guy like me and answer these questions. So it's a pleasure, man. I'm, 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 uh, I'm grateful to be asked. Yeah, I appreciate it. I have one last question for you. And uh, my production partner is also a very big fan of yours. And he asked me specifically to ask you about the sort of hidden track at the end of the horror on the Hogacy. And I realized I don't know that I've ever spoken with anyone or been able to ask about sort of the the philosophy of the hidden track. That was a thing back in the 90s. Um, do you go into it planning that? Like, here, we're going to end the song and we're going to build in you know, 10 minutes of silence and we're going to tack on this little ditty at the end. So what happened there, um, was, um, I, I have to go back to the resident alien cause we put one on that one, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which I don't know if you've heard the hidden track on that one. It's, it's just a sort of like groaning thing and it's yeah. pretty, we were sort of encouraged 
power manager because that comes it comes 666 seconds uh, <laughs> after the last note mm -hmm. of actual record, right? I've never pieced that together before, but you're right. Okay. I yeah, like that. Um, that was the thing. It was supposed to be, you know, there was that whole thing with like Ozzy Osbourne or whatever. Yeah. Right? And he was getting sued for the satanic stuff. So we just, I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Do that to start with. And then as it happened, some of our records were sold through this record club or something of mm -hmm. Resident Alien. And because it was over a certain amount of time, I don't know what it was, mm -hmm. it, it, it was categorized in certain areas of royalty uh, revenue has been worth more money because okay. it I think there was one on the Chinese album originally hmm. uh, and then they made it they made me take a lot of stuff off it was annoying they made me switch it I had hmm. used some music I'd use some sound from a some spoken word from a film hmm. a matter of life and death and it just happened to be a I think it happened to be a Warner owned film and oh, they got it they weren't gonna let us use it so when the third record came along, uh, we thought, oh, let's do it again. And I had, I had this song called I Can't Hear Here. I Can't It just seemed to work on the end of the record, mm -hmm. to be honest. And, yeah. and I think, again, that was put at 666 seconds. And because you had a CD, you know, it was like, well, you might as well use up the time because it's not like a vinyl, you know. Right. right. Um, and uh, you couldn't really do that. It would affect the frequency of the rest of the record if you tried to do that. So, yeah. so it okay. was just having a CD and being able to do it, you know, and yeah. uh, uh, that's why we did it. Okay, I figured. He particularly likes that song, and so I thought I would ask specifically what the story was there. But, um, well, look, uh, Royston, this was this was great. I am so grateful that you talked to me. I've been fascinated with you for many years and wondered what your story was, and I'm really grateful that you shared it with me. Thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome, man. It's nice chatting with you, John. You Have too. All right, there you have it, Royston Langdon. Interesting stuff there, like I said, especially there at the end. I really thought his, his relationship to being a rock star and any fame or money that comes with that is a really fresh take really interesting thoughts there and how interesting that he doesn't even really make money off of in the meantime anymore you know it, the music business will never make sense to me <laughs> anyway i want to close it out with one of my favorite songs of theirs this is off the hogacy i know 
He doesn't love this album, but I do. This track is called A Real Waste of Food. And uh, I want to say a big thanks once again to our Yan the Man, our intrepid producer, because he's been bugging me to get Space Hog on here for a while, and we finally made it happen. So thank you, Yan, for the recommendation. That goes for anyone else. You're always welcome to send us some recommendations. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on uh, Twitter at thehustlepod. Next week, we are talking to the key guitarist and songwriter of really one of the most quintessential new wave bands of the early 80s. Um, not a ton of hits, probably only two songs that casual people would even know, but they are somewhat iconic, and uh, this guy wrote all their stuff. And it's a really, really interesting story. There are so many things about this guy that you would never guess, but they were a great band, great songs. I really think you're going to like this one, so come back next week, okay? Thanks, everybody. We will talk to you then. Stop his mind from attracting the flies But this train don't travel any faster